It is great to be back with all of you after my recent trip to the U.S. to visit my family. I want to thank uh, many of you for your loving care and concern, your notes of encouragement, and especially your prayers for our family, specifically my mother. Uh, Because of your prayers and the prayers of many around the world, uh, my mother has suffered very little side effect from the strong medication she is taking to, Lord willingly, shrink her tumors and prevent any further systemic spread of her cancer uh, so that the doctors can operate. She enjoyed very much having all of the children and grandchildren in one place for the first time ever, and uh, the joy in her face made it all worthwhile. You know, the more I realize my parents are aging, and as I mature myself, I realize that family is something indeed to be treasured. We don't have our parents or our grandparents all the time. And so, as I've said many times, we honor our parents and grandparents when they are alive. Uh, For many years, Cindy and I decided uh, to bring our family back to the U.S. once every two or three years. But we decided after discussion that as the Lord gives my mother life and allows her uh, to live, we will try to return every year to see her and to encourage her. And I think that honors the Lord as we honor our parents. During this trip, I often had the opportunity to have some personal time with my mother. And I would drive her around to the doctor's appointments, and uh, she ran errands. And I would ask her, Mom, how are you? And she would say to me, Son, I'm okay. And again, I'd ask her the next day as I drove her to another appointment, Mom, how are you? And she'd say, I'm okay. That was often her response, I'm okay. I heard that a lot. And so one day I asked her, Mom, how are you really? And her response to me, son, I'm really okay. How are you emotionally, Mom? I'm all right. And on another occasion, I said, Mom, I know that I'm your son, and I know you don't want to worry me, but I'm also a pastor, and I've seen people go through this journey. How are you? Her response, I'm okay. I think finally she had enough of me asking her how she was, and also members of the family asking her how she was. And so one day she gathered the family and she said, can you please stop asking how I am? I'm really okay. I'm not pretending. I'm very much at peace. And I'm okay with what I am going through. So if you ask me how my mother's condition is, my response to you will be, she's okay. Now I know her response comes from the fact that her faith in the Lord is strong. And she has had an intimate walk with our Lord for decades that has prepared her to go through what she's going through now. She knows very clearly what lies ahead of her. She knows what her future holds for one who has placed her trust in Jesus Christ as her personal Savior. And that's why I think she can have an attitude of transcendent peace and joy. And that is how the Christian life is to be lived. You see, when you know about the future, it determines how you live in the present. In fact, knowing the future should radically change the way you live, the way you think, the way you act, and how you treat others. In another example, let's say that you are barely making it through the day. You are economically challenged. You're living paycheck to paycheck. And let's say, for example that you know that 10 years from now, there is an irrevocable trust 
to your name that is worth 10 million U.S. dollars. It's irrevocable. It's yours. How does that change the way you live? Does it change the generous spirit that you have? Does it change how you treat others? I hope you see my point. That 10 million U.S. dollar irrevocable trust does not change your present circumstance. You're still making it through the day, day by day. But somehow the knowledge that it is soon coming should change your attitude and actions in the present. That is the very purpose of biblical prophecy. Knowing what God has in store for us in the future does not change our present condition. But knowing about it elicits in us a change of attitude and actions, knowing that what God says will happen, will happen. And the truth of that knowledge should assure us and change our perspective. And so we begin this week with a study in the book of Zephaniah, one of the books in the Bible that is a prophetic book classified in the section known as the Minor Prophets. In this book of Zephaniah, it tells us what God will do in the future, as all prophetic books do. And so therefore, the response is not only to read and to know what this book says, but it should elicit in us a life-transforming change. A change in attitude, a change in action. So let's unpack this book. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to this very little book tucked away towards the end of the Old Testament, the book of Zephaniah. When you get to this book, put your bookmarks there, your Bible ribbons. We're going to be in this book for the next few weeks. The book of Zephaniah is after the book of Habakkuk and right before the book of Haggai. Put your bookmarks there. We're going to study this book verse by verse. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 1. The prophet begins by writing these words. The word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. As we open this book, we find out two very important things. First of all, these are not the words of man. Right off the bat, Zephaniah says, the word of God which came through him. These are the words of our heavenly father sent through his prophet Zephaniah, to those who were reading this book at that time, and to us today. So we're going to talk about some pretty harsh verses, some pretty pointed, directed verses. Do not get mad at the messenger. These are the words of God. The second thing we want to note in verse 1 is that Zephaniah takes the time to trace his lineage four generations back, which is unique to the other prophets like Jonah and Joel who only trace their lineage to their fathers. What is interesting to note is that when Zephaniah does this, we know that his great-great-grandfather is Hezekiah, the former good king of Judah. Most scholars believe that Zephaniah is of royal blood and he comes from a privileged position. And his intimate knowledge of the royal courts will be evident in his writings. Now, for this member of the royal household to say what he's going to say to the elite and the ruling class of his generation, we will see will take a lot of nerve and boldness. 
What is important is that Zephaniah is willing to say what needs to be said regardless of his position or perhaps what others would think about him. His prophetic ministry is during the pre-exilic time of good King Josiah of the southern kingdom of Judah. And we're going to find out that his primary message to the listeners of that day and to us today is that God's impending wrath and punishment is coming. And therefore, we need to get our act together. We need to change our lives to change the way we live. And this time of universal judgment that is coming will be known as the great day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is coming when God's universal judgment will be upon the wicked. What's wonderful about this book is interspersed between these very harsh and bold warnings of God's impending judgment. We see also words of comfort, especially towards the end of the book. We are going to be reminded that although God is a God of justice, he's also a God of love. Although God is a God who makes threats and carries them out, he is also a God who is a keeper of his covenanted promises to his people. This is a very balanced view of who God is. And so we begin in verses 2 and 3. Look what it says. The word of God through his prophet Zephaniah. I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will consume men and beasts. I will consume the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, and the stumbling blocks along with the wicked. I will cut off man from the face of the land, says the Lord. Pretty intense to begin this book. You're going to find out this is not a feel-good book. Some very strong statements from the Lord. These two verses tell us that God's universal judgment is coming for the wicked. It will be sweeping. It will affect all mankind. It will affect all living things from the birds in the air to the fish in the sea. And these verses are important for our generation today. Because listen carefully. The people of our generation have forgotten that there are consequences to our actions, whether individually or as a nation. People today, even Christians, think that we can get away with doing what is evil. But God's word shows very clearly otherwise. God's universal judgment will come upon all people. Now, can you imagine how a message like this must have been received in the royal courts, delivered by one of their own. Surely Zephaniah was not one of the more popular people in the royal courts. And yet he says these things, he delivers God's message to show forth that no one is above God's universal judgment, regardless of your privileged position, status, or wealth. From verses 4 to 13... Zephaniah will direct his attention specifically to God's judgment on the people of Israel living in Judah. And here in these verses, he will single out four types of people that God will judge and punish in the future. And hopefully knowing that God is going to select specifically these four groups of people to judge will cause us to self-examine our lives to see if we are guilty of the very same thing. And so our response will be to ask God for forgiveness and then to change our ways. 
As many of you know, this week our church will have our annual garage sale with the proceeds going to help replace two of our 10-plus-year-old church vehicles. Every year before, my wife goes through my clothes to see what to donate to the garage sale. She collects it into a pile, and before handing it over, she asks me to look to see if it's okay to give it away, to donate it. When I look at the pile, I pretty much take back everything. I tell her, how can you give these clothes away, these 20-year-old clothes? She says, it doesn't fit you anymore. My response, you never know. One day I will be thin again. I said, how can you give away these 10-year-old shirts with holes in them? Don't you know that these are the softest T-shirts? Don't you know that I've waited 10 years for them to be washed thousands of times so that they can feel so soft? But she's learned better than to ask me now. She doesn't ask me anymore. Often around this time when we have our garage sale, she has a purge. She, she does a house cleaning. And she gives me the criteria. All clothes that are too small, have holes, are faded, and you never wear will go to the garage sale. She has a criteria. It is not haphazard. So I really don't have any say in it because I have already been warned. And so the next time you see me wear a shirt with holes or faded, please do not feel sorry for me. It is because I'm saving that shirt from being given away at next year's garage sale. I can tell my wife, see, I am wearing it. In the same way, God tells the people of Judah, there will be no surprises when I purge the nation. And these are the types of wicked people I'm looking for. And he's going to spell it out very clearly. Four groups that God will punish in the future. Again, written for that context, for that day, and yet with an application so that we can look into our lives to see if we are guilty of the same thing. Because the God of the Old Testament is also the God of the New Testament. And what he hates back then, he also hates today. The first group, verse 4 to 6. The word of God, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off every trace of Baal from this place. The names of the idolatrous priests with the pagan priests, those who worship the host of heaven on the housetops, those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord, but also swear by Milcom. Those who have turned back from following the Lord and have not sought the Lord nor inquired of him. If you're taking notes, here's number one. The first group that will be purged and punished by God on that great day of the Lord, number one, will be those who are worshipers of idols. Idol worshipers. Idolaters. The worship of the false god Baal had been in Israel since the time of the Judges. And it was perpetuated, especially in the northern kingdom, by King Ahab and Jezebel. And we just went through a whole sermon series on Elijah's interaction with Ahab and Jezebel. It was permeated in the southern kingdom by the evil king Manasseh. Manasseh's grandson, King Josiah, was a good king. And so he began to destroy the worship of Baal in the southern kingdom of Judah. But his kingship did not last long. And the purge of the worship of Baal did not last. But God says in verse 4, One day 
I will deal with this problem once and for all. I will rid this land of all idol worship. Now, what type of idol worship? In verse 5 to 6, interestingly, Zephaniah talks about three levels of idol worship. Three types of idol worship. Now, the first type are those who are deeply into the false religion. They believe in something totally apart from Yahweh. Verse 5, those who worship the host of heaven on the housetops. These were star worshipers. These were astrologers. These were people who were truly pagan in their practice. Of course, we know that these people, for sure, are idolaters, idol worshipers. But I want you to note the second group, also in verse 5. The second group of idol worshipers were people we call religious syncretists. Those who combine the worship of the one true God, Yahweh, with other gods. Verse 5, those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord, but they also swear by Milcom. Now, who in the world is Milcom? Milcom is Hebrew for the god of the Ammonites, Molech. And if you read the book of Jeremiah, you know that the worship of Molech often included child sacrifices to this false god. Now, I want you to imagine that. These people worship the one true God, Yahweh, who we worship, and they also worship Molech, who required child sacrifices. No two practices could be further apart. Our God never requires child sacrifices. And yet these people in their minds could somehow worship God and worship Molech. And the Bible says these are idolaters. doesn't matter if you worship God, but if you worship others along with God, you're an idol worshiper. And we have that today. We call it the religion of the Prokabu. What's that? That's Protestant, Catholic, and Buddhist all put together. Prokabu. And you see it in a lot of households today. You have a statue of Jesus, a statue of Mary, and a statue of Buddha. And we have no problems with that because you can somehow say in the conscious, clear conscience of your mind, well, look, I believe in Jesus and here's a statue of him. You would be guilty of religious syncretism. It is not believing in the true God alone. It is believing in all gods. And you go to these homes and you say, wow, you have all of these gods. Why do you have all of these gods when you have Jesus? And they'll say, the more the merrier. Just to make sure we worship the right one. That's religious syncretism. That is idol worship. Because God is a jealous God. He will not cede his glory to another. He alone is true. The third group of idol worshipers is found in verse 6. These were men and women who believed in God, but note this. They turned their back from following the Lord and have not sought the Lord nor inquired of Him. These were men and women who were religiously indifferent, unconcerned. They believed that there's the true God, Yahweh, but they didn't care much about obeying Him. They didn't care much about seeking His counsel. Today, we call them nominal Christians, Christians who don't feel like they need to come to church or have a walk with God as long as they're Christians. It's interesting that God put them in the classification of idolaters. Because when you place something else before or in place of the one true God, that is the very definition of idolatry, replacing God, 
or prioritizing something over God, whatever that may be. And for all of these people, they were told to do one thing. Look at verse 7. Be silent in the presence of the Lord God. For the day of the Lord is at hand. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has invited his guests. To this first group whom God will punish and purge, they were told to be quiet in the presence of the Lord. Because God's coming judgment should evoke fear and silence. This great day of the Lord is God's universal judgment upon the earth. And it is something that should silence the world. God is serious about this. It is a serious anger from God. If you remember when you were children, you knew how to read your parents. You knew if your parents were angry but not really angry or you knew when your parents were really really angry right you know what i'm talking about sometimes your parents are angry but they're not super angry and so you have no problems answering them back or mouthing off or laughing in their face they're okay angry but if you're wise enough as a child you can read the signs when your parents are really angry when they raise their voice and when they're serious where if you utter one more word, you may be grounded for the rest of your life. Right? You, you know that type of anger? Yeah, you know. And it is this second type of angry that God is referring to. You need to be quiet and not say anything. No excuses. God is serious. And God says, I prepared a sacrifice and I've invited the guests. This is not a happy verse. The guests are the Babylonians, God's chosen instrument of punishment for the southern kingdom of Judah. And he's prepared a sacrifice. The sacrifice are the people. They will be slaughtered by the Babylonians because of their idol worship. Let that be a warning to us as Christians. If we have idols in our lives as seen in outward, outright paganism, religious syncretism, or indifference towards God, God will single out these groups of people and punish them. Because worship is to be solely directed at our Lord. He is a jealous God, rightfully so, demanding what is due Him. And because He alone deserves our singular worship and attention, any other variance away from this displeases Him. And since we know the heart of God in this manner... We need to shape up. We need to correct any area of our life that is inconsistent with this. You know, this is a topic that our generation doesn't like to hear. That's why you don't hear pastors often preach about this. Because in this generation, they think that we want to only hear nice things. And that's the truth. But the problem of only hearing nice things and never hearing about God's wrath and judgment is that the, is that the discipline of God's people... And the moral degradation of this world is in a downward trajectory. I know these are pretty harsh words. But we need to hear them. Because this is the heart of God. The second group of people, verse 8, look with me. 
And it shall be in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children, and all such are as clothed with foreign apparel. The second group of people that God will judge and punish in the future purge in the day of the Lord, number two, are those who embrace this world's culture. Embracers of this world's culture. Now look what verse 8 says. He will specifically judge Josiah's children and the nobility. Why? The end of verse 8. Because they wore the clothes of the Babylonians and the Assyrians. Huh? So you may be thinking, "Uh uh-oh. Will God judge me because I wear the foreign brands of Gucci and Armani and YSL? That's not the point. What is meant in verse 8 is that these members of the royal household had adopted the values and the culture and the practices of these foreign pagan nations which were inconsistent with the cultures and values of the true God and what he has espoused. And so they began to latch on to the culture of the pagan Babylonians. And they began to wear the clothes of the Assyrians, so much wanting to be in the culture. And God says, you will be punished. Indeed, that's what happened historically in the near future context. Josiah's son, Jehoahaz, reigned only three months. He was captured by the pharaoh Necho II and taken to Egypt where he died. Josiah's wicked son, Jehoiakim, only reigned 11 years and was defeated by King Nebuchadnezzar. Jehoiakim's son, Jehoiachin, Josiah's grandson, reigned only three months and taken captive. And then the last of Josiah's son, Judah's last king, Zedekiah, was blinded by Nebuchadnezzar and taken also into captivity into Babylon. This should be a warning to us. That God does not approve when we get caught up and embrace the God, ungodly culture of this world. It's also a reminder to us as parents, parents who love Jesus Christ very much, just because you love Jesus with all of your heart and walk in his stead does not mean your children and your grandchildren will walk with Jesus as well. Pray for them. Teach them well. Guard their hearts. There is no guarantee. Faith is personal. Cultivate the hearts of your young people, your children. Guard it. We, in our culture today, must use great discernment because the cultural phenomenon and the trends are right in our face. It's not easy, I know. It's hard to push back against something that surrounds us. And yet, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 in the New Testament tells us very clearly, do not love the things of this world. It doesn't get more clear than that. Our spiritual walk with God will define our sensitivity to the culture of this world. Let me repeat that. Our spiritual walk with God will define our sensitivity to the culture of this world. If we walk intimately with God, then it will be very apparent what parts of this world we can accept, and what parts of this world we cannot ever accept. 
The problem is that we today are very tolerant. We accept everything, acceptance. And those are great concepts. But the problem of tolerance and acceptance is that we begin to tolerate and accept things that God has made very clear in the scriptures he is against. And if we begin to accept and tolerate things that God is against, then we will never be separated from the world. And no wonder men and women today, Christians, have a lack of conviction in matters of culture. This is a warning for those who have a tendency to embrace the culture of this world. The Bible says God, in the day of the Lord, will seek them out and punish them. The third group, verse 9. In the same day, I will punish all those who leap over the threshold, who fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. The third group of people that God will judge and purge are those who plunder for personal gain. Plunderers for personal gain, number three. These are men and women we would call thieves and robbers, whether it's blue-collar or white-collar. If you steal for your own material gain, you are in this category. Now, look at verse 9. He refers to them as one, note this, who leap over the threshold. We can put it today in our current context, those who jump the line. Right? You're waiting in line, you follow the rules, and someone sneaks in. How does that make you feel? It doesn't make you feel very good, does it? These are line jumpers. They use unethical means by which to gain the advantage. This is the third group of people, plunderers for personal gain. After spending some time with our family in Texas, uh, we spent a few days in L.A. waiting for our flight back to Manila. As a reward for our children, uh, we took them to Disneyland and Universal Studios in Hollywood. At Universal Studios, to get in, you pay a ticket, uh, entrance fee, uh, to enjoy the theme park. But there is another ticket classification that is known as the front-of-the-line ticket. And so if you're willing to shell out two or three times more than the regular theme park ticket, you can get something called the front-of-the-line pass, which means you don't have to wait for one or two hours to ride the rides at Universal. You just simply wear the ID and you go right to the front. Now, we don't have that type of money, and so we waited in line with all the other common folk, and it was fine. But we would see in the line next to us men and women who purchased this wearing their IDs who would just go to the front of the line and not have to wait. They paid for it. That was a benefit for them. In a particular ride, we were waiting for about 45 minutes, and on the other side, I was noticing the men and women who had bought this front-of-the-line ticket pass uh, and were moving up front. I noticed uh, as we got to the front, uh, after waiting almost an hour, uh, that uh, the attendant uh, was having a discussion with the man from China, a Chinese man. He was asking him where his ID was, his front-of-the-line ID that allowed him to skip the line. Uh, the man pretended not to understand him. Uh, in fact, he was with a group of about eight. Uh, it was a family, uh, grandparents. This was the grandpa, uh, grandparents, parents, and kids. And some of them I saw had the ID, 
and some of them, the majority of them, didn't. And they pretended not to understand what the tenant was saying. He was saying, all of you, to avail of this benefit, need to have purchased the front-of-the-line ticket pass. It doesn't mean if one person buys it, he gets to bring his entire family. Well, apparently, that's what they did. And so they argued with him. And you can imagine there are thousands of people. This is the summer rush. Thousands of people who are waiting behind. And so in frustration, the attendant simply said, okay, just go on in. But these are the rules. I knew they understood because after they got in, we got in as well. And they began to speak in Mandarin. And I could understand what they were saying. And they were saying we got away with it. And let's do this for the rest of the rides. We'll just cause a commotion, pretend we don't understand that we have to buy one pass for every person, and we'll just sneak in our entire family. Well, this didn't sit very well with me. I was annoyed that they were gaming the system because I had waited in line with my family, and that was not fun, but I knew that these were the rules. And so you know me. I went and spoke to the attendant. I said to the attendant, I know you may not have understood what they were saying, but they understood what you were saying, and they tried to game the system. Uh, I don't know if you want to do anything about it, but this is the situation. Uh, the attendant told me, sir, thank you for telling me. Uh, yes, there, we do encounter people who do this, but with the thousands and tens of thousands of people who come into our park every day, we can't do really anything about it. It was then that I got angry. And I remembered this verse because this was the verse that had been percolating in my mind. And at that moment, I so wish I could speak Mandarin Chinese because I wanted to quote this verse 9 to them in Mandarin. And the Lord says, I will punish all those who jump the line. <laughs> Too bad I can only understand and not speak. But that's exactly what this verse is about. It's the assurance to me and to all of you that God will take care of these people. God will take care of those who have gamed the system, who are the advantage takers. So let that be a warning to us. Be careful, even Christians, you who steal and use deceitful ways to gain things in the world. The Bible is very clear. You can game the system, but you will not get away with it. You will not get away with it because God will judge these types of people. Look at verse 10 and 11. He gives a very specific example. And it shall be on that day, says the Lord, the sound of a mournful cry from the fish gate, a wailing from the second quarter, and a loud crashing from the hills. Wail, you inhabitants of Maktesh, for all the merchant people are cut down. All those who handle money are cut off. Zephaniah gives a very vivid example. He gives an example to the people of Jerusalem, a future vision of what will happen to them soon. The fish gate is a gate in the northern part of Jerusalem, facing the north. That's where the fish market was. It faced the road that led to Galilee. And if I were to take you to Jerusalem, I would show you the gates of Jerusalem. And so, when they catch the fish at Galilee, they would bring it down and it would enter through the fish gate, the northern gate of Jerusalem. And that's where the fish market would be. 
Now, the Bible tells us there would be a mournful cry from the fish gate. Why? Because it is through this gate historically that King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon would enter the city of Jerusalem and he would slaughter the merchants in that area. That's what the Bible says. Maktesh is the business district of Jerusalem, the marketplace. And it was here that a lot of the businessmen were extorting money. They were making money using usury, overcharging, taking advantage of others. And the Bible says, be careful because I will deal with these people first. They will be judged severely. Again, this should serve as both an encouragement and a warning to us. Warning to those who are swindling. Warning those who are taking advantage of others for their own gain. But encouragement for us who have been taken advantage of. Encouragement to us who do what is right and and wait in line and don't jump the line. We will see one day that those who do will be taken care of. These are the words of God. This is how God deals with this group of people. The fourth group, verse 12 and 13. And it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish the men who are settled in complacency, who say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. Therefore, their goods shall become booty and their houses a desolation. They shall build houses, but not inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards, but not drink their wine. The fourth group of people that God will punish in the purge of the day of the Lord are the wicked who are, number four, indifferent to God. These are men and women who are indifferent to God. God will search them out, verse 12. None will go unpunished. These are the men and women who no longer believe that God affects their life. They have a very low view of God. These are men and women who say, God does not keep his promises. We shouldn't be scared of him. God's threat, he never acts out on it. Today, these would be the men and women who say, well, we don't need to worship God. We don't need to come to church. Yes, we're Christians, pastor. Don't bother us with how we live our life. We're Christians already. But we don't take God very seriously. You know what God will say to these people? Let me show you how real I am. Let me show you how serious I am. How? Verse 13. Their goods shall become no more. Their houses, a desolation. They'll build homes. They can't enjoy it. They'll plant vineyards, but they can't drink from it. They will lose all of their wealth. They will have no physical security. They will have no enjoyment of life. They will not be blessed. Let that be a warning for us today, those of us who are indifferent to God, those of us who think He doesn't work in the lives of men and women, those of us who think that we don't need to care about what He says. That's many of us. We take His commands as suggestions God says, I will show you one day how real I am in this lifetime or in the next. I love how the Bible is so clear. He is very clear when he tells us who he will seek out to punish, who he will seek out to reward. When we went to Disneyland, there was an incident 
in the park that happened to our family, uh, that Disney's guest relation department the next day invited our family to make up for what happened, to sit in the VIP section right in front of the castle where you don't actually have to stand or sit on the sidewalk. There's actually chairs for you. Uh, you sit in this VIP section right in front of the castle to watch the evening parade and the fireworks show that night. And so, of course, uh, we took advantage of this. It was free. And we got there a bit early, and uh, we began to chat, or I began to chat with the people around me. I found out in front of me was a very famous chef from Washington, D.C., who had brought his family. And behind me was an oil executive from Kuwait who was living in Beverly Hills, and he brought his family. In the course of our conversations, uh, I found out that uh, to sit in this area, you had to be on a VIP package tour, uh, which costs more than $450 per person. So I did the math in my head for a family of five like we had. We were sitting in seats worth $2,500. That's 100,000 pesos. Of course, I knew why they could afford to sit there. And of course, in the course of conversation separately as we talked with these families, they asked me what I do. I told them I'm a pastor. And in both cases, I got a very surprising, oh. You see, in their minds, they're trying to figure out how a pastor is able to sit in the section, to sit with them. Or they must be wondering, what must be the going rate for a pastor these days in his salary? You know, I didn't tell them. I let them wonder. You know, in America, uh, they're, very, um, uh, they're very private in these matters. So you, you, you don't ask how much it would cost you to sit here. And they were trying to ask questions to try to ascertain how our family could get there. And I'm, I, I just let them wonder. Got a kick out of that. As I thought about uh, this, I thought about the fact that when we get to heaven and we get our rewards, and if there even is a VIP section in heaven, no one will wonder why people are there or not. No one will wonder why we are in heaven or not and why we get the rewards or not. Because the Bible is very clear about who gets into heaven and who goes to hell. The Bible is very clear about who gets rewarded and who gets punished. It is clearly stated in the scriptures as it is clearly stated in the book of Zephaniah. The groups of people he will call out at the end to punish and judge. Indifference to God will be punished by God one day. Those who do not care about the spiritual matters of life, those who diminish God's power, those who diminish God's ability will get what is coming to them. Those are the words of God. He has made it abundantly clear. These 13 verses have given us a glimpse of how God will deal judiciously with the nation of Israel specifically. But it also gives us a glimpse into the heart of the unchanging God of the Old Testament, who is the same God as the God of the New Testament, who, although we are living in the age of grace, is the same God who hates those who are worshipers of idols, who are embracers of the world's cultures, who are plunderers for personal gain, and who are indifferent to Him. May we be warned because the scriptures have warned us. And change the way you and I live. 
And if there's a need for repentance and confession, do it now. Because the shed blood of Jesus Christ through the cross enables us to find forgiveness lest we receive God's judgment. Because remember, what we know about the future affects how we live today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. It is a wake-up call even to me of what you expect of us, your own children. Sometimes many of us, including myself, are no better than the pagans of this world. We don't believe you. We are indifferent. We don't care. We don't think much about you. But it not only breaks your heart, it is something that you hate. Thank you for the revelation through the book of Zephaniah, a glimpse into your heart. And because we've been exposed and know elicit in each man and each woman here this morning a desire to change. It's simply not good enough to know. We need to act. And how each of us act, Father, would you send the Holy Spirit to prompt in the hearts of these men and women how they can be more Christ-like. Thank you, Lord, for this time. In Jesus' name we pray.